Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. This morning, and good morning everyone, those of you here meeting at Central Campus, also those of you who are joining us online, along with the rest of our church family who are meeting together at our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in Northwest Calgary. We're in a series in, on what the Bible has to say about one of the key pursuits of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and that is the pursuit of generosity. Now, when I think of generosity, I'm reminded of two friends who went on a vacation together in the South Pacific. And while they were flying their little plane, a storm comes up, and their little aircraft gets hit by lightning. The engine quits, and they end up crash landing on an uncharted little island. After a time of recovery, one of the men goes off to explore the island, and when he returns, he is really upset. He says to his partner, we're done. I mean, do you realize there's no water on this island? Do you realize there's no source of food at all? We're going to die. And the other man just kind of leans back against the fuselage of the wrecked plane, folds his arms, says, nah, we're not going to die. I make over $250,000 a week. The first man grabs him, shakes him, and says, you're delirious, man. He says, didn't you hear me? He said, there's no food on this island. There's no water on this island. We're going to die. Totally unruffled, the other man says, no, we're not. I make over $250,000 a week, and I give 10% of it to my church. My pastor will find us. <laughs> now, I bring that up because I know some of you are thinking, oh, man, my friend finally accepts my offer to visit our church, and here you are talking about giving and generosity. I mean, can't you talk about something nice and safe like love? Come on, pastor. Well, here's the thing, friends. It's true. People often accuse the church of focusing too much on giving. And yet the heart of the Christian faith is about giving and being generous. The word give is used over 2,200 times in the scriptures, almost twice as much as the words faith, hope, and love are used combined. That's one of the reasons giving comes up so much. Because it's woven all the way through the scriptures. It was one of the main themes that Jesus talked about. I mean, if I were to talk about love this morning, I'd have to talk about giving. Because even though you can give without loving, you cannot love without giving. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave what was most precious to him, his one and only Son. Our God is a generous God who not only blesses us, but wants to bless and draw all people to himself through our lives, through our witness, and yes, our generosity. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
And yet, as I've pointed out throughout this series, though we may exercise token generosity, which essentially costs us little or nothing, we are not naturally inclined to be sacrificially generous. generous. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, if you want to be set free to be generous, then your mind needs to be renewed. We need to decide to trust Christ and what he says about generosity rather than our culture in terms of what really matters in life. We, need also, we also need to embrace God's principles of generosity, which in simple summary terms are this. First of all, all that I have, God owns. Secondly, all that I need, God provides. And thirdly, all that I give, God multiplies. Now, we've already unpacked the first two, and today I want to examine the third principles of God's generosity plan. All that I give, God multiplies. But first, would you stand with me and join me in dedicating this time in the Scriptures to God in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for being such a generous God. Lord, all that we have comes from you. You've asked us only, Lord, to be good managers of what you've given to us and, and to share with others. I ask, Lord, that you would focus our mind, that you would soften our hearts, and you would give us, Lord, the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to as we look at your word today. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, the Calgary Herald featured an article in which teenagers were asked, if you won a million dollars, what would you do with it? 16-year-old Amanda gave the typical response when she said, I'd buy a big house, a nice sports car, something everyone is going to look at. 15-year-old Jamie said, I'd buy the NHL and buy out Gary Bettman. 17-year-old <laughs> Tricia said, I would put it in the bank and live off the interest. Then if I found out I was dying in a week, I would blow that money like crazy. I would go to the Bahamas, I'd buy my dad and mom a nicer house, then I'd buy a house all of us girls could party in. Now these responses are very revealing, not only about the values of our teens, but let's be honest, they really reveal the values that people in general hold in our culture. Of the more than 20 responses in the article, almost everyone listed larger homes, expensive cars, world travel and fine clothes as their top spending priorities. Only two made passing reference to being generous to people other than their immediate family or friends. You see, what we do with what we've got has a lot to do with what we believe in. A true follower of Jesus Christ will invest his time, his ability, and his money differently than that of a materialist. The materialist is attached to the world that she is in. The fully devoted Christian is attached to the world that she is going to. 
So let me ask you, how do you view the time that you give or the money that you give to the church or to some other charitable cause? Do you view your generosity of time and money as kind of a debt that you owe God? The way that you owe the government taxes and the way that you owe the bank mortgage payments? When I was a teenager, I spent most of my Saturdays and summer holidays working on our family farm alongside my grandparents who lived on the farm. In the evenings after supper, farmers uh, would gather on occasion at one of the homesteads and they would discuss life. They would tell jokes and complain about an assortment of things, including the grasshopper invasion or the cost of fuel or the lack of rain. One thing that I can't ever recall hearing a farmer grumble about, though, was the cost of seed. You see, while fuel was an expense, in their mind, seed was an investment. Seed, once planted, would multiply. Seed would bring a return much greater than itself. Now, it's noteworthy that when God explains to us why we should be generous, and in particular, the motive and the attitude that we should have when we give, he uses this analogy of a farmer or a gardener investing in seed. Even though God is concerned with the way we behave externally, he is much more concerned about the state of our heart. He's much more concerned about what's going on inside, what our heart motivation is for what we do. When it comes to generosity, he says, don't see your generosity negatively. Don't view giving as an expense or a debt that you have to pay. You know, someone's got to do it, okay, here you go, kind of attitude. Rather, he says, see it as an investment, as something that really matters to God. We see this principle taught in 2 Corinthians, the passage that we're going to look at and unpack today. And, and so I'm going to invite you to stand with me again as we read a portion of it together. We're all going to get exercise today. It's a good thing, good thing. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us use will result in thanksgiving to God. Thank you. you. may be seated. Now our God is not a God of chaos but a God of order. You only need to look at the universe, the galaxies, the stars, the, the, the planets, and, and how they function in symmetry to see how everything is finely tuned by our God. God established the universe around certain natural, physical, and spiritual laws. For example, there are mathematical laws. There are laws of chemistry. There's the law of gravity. 
And in the same way, God has ordained certain spiritual laws which we find in Scripture. One of those laws is the law of sowing and reaping, or planting and harvesting. Now, in the passage we just read together, the Apostle Paul introduces us to three principles that stem from the law of sowing and reaping. And the first principle is this. To have a harvest, you must plant seed. In verse 6, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Well, this is the agricultural principle of investment. No seed, no harvest. Now, this principle is true in the spiritual realm as well. God wants us to understand that in his kingdom, there is no spiritual growth. There is no kingdom impact without stepping out in faith and planting seed. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus said this, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. Notice that Jesus calls us to give first. He calls us to step out in faith and plant seed first. Now, why does God want us to give first? Because his greatest desire is to have an intimate friendship with us. And for that to happen, he knows that our knowledge and our faith in him needs to grow. And so toward that end, he gives us an assignment. And he invites us to step out and to respond to his calling while trusting him to do what we can't do. For example, if he calls us to shepherd a group of children or calls us to mentor a group of youth or to lead a group or to reach out to a neighbor or to give financially to someone in need and we say yes and we step out in faith and we plant a seed and we witness a harvest in which God shows up and someone is introduced to Jesus and their life is radically transformed in a good way, then our faith in God and friendship with God goes to another whole level. And we will trust him even more when he gives us his next assignment. Even if there's no evident indication of a harvest, when we say yes to his call and we plant a seed by doing what he asks us to do, we can know that God is working behind the scenes to bring a harvest. And one day, he will reveal to us how our faithfulness made a difference. It may be in this life. It may be in the next. We can trust him in this. On the other hand, if we don't say yes to his call, and we neglect planting seed, we can know with equal certainty that there will be no harvest at all. When we refuse to plant a seed, we will never know how God wanted to use our life or our generosity to impact the life of someone for eternity. Nor will we experience the priceless adventure that God had in store to grow our faith in Him. You know, there are so many ways, that, so many adventures that God wants to take us on to grow our faith. Such a great harvest of impact he wants to accomplish through us, step by step. 
But it will only happen if we respond to his call and plant a seed. If we exercise faith, step out and offer the seed of our time, our prayers, our spiritual gifts, and our talents. There are so many things that God wants to do in our city, in our nation, and around the world. Missionaries that he wants to send. Injustice he wants to stop. Basic needs he wants to meet around the globe. Children, youth, and adults he wants to reach. And he has chosen to do it through you and me. But it won't happen unless we respond to his call and plant seed. Unless we step out in faith and offer the seed of our time and our talents and our financial resources. That's the first principle of the law of harvest, sowing and reaping. To have a harvest, you must plant seed. The second principle is this. You harvest sometime after you plant the seed. Often months after you sow. And that requires patience and trust. Impatient farmers don't farm very long. Plants take time to grow. Fruit ripens slowly. The same is true in the spiritual realm. You may have stepped out in faith and planted a seed. By leading a small group or offering your home as a place of hospitality or mentoring someone, or serving in some ministry area. But time has gone by, and from your perspective, your investment of time and energy isn't making any difference. You're discouraged. But friend, be assured that God is working behind the scenes, and He knows things that you don't know. He sees things that you don't see, and He's working in ways that you're not even aware of. You just keep watering your seed, keep pulling those weeds that are attacking your seed. Just keep praying, keep being faithful in your ministry, and know that a harvest is coming in God's way and in God's time. God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful and to trust him to bring the harvest. Now, some people decide to follow Jesus not because he is Lord and King, but because they see him as the answer to all of their wants. They sort of see him as a celestial slot machine. They have no desire to serve him. They want him to serve them. And so they plant a seed looking for a quick return. And when he doesn't come through with the goods right now, they walk away and they say Christianity doesn't work. Make no mistake, Christianity does work. It's just that Jesus doesn't work that way. God is no genie. You serve him. He doesn't serve you. If you pray or plant seeds or give with wrong motives, if you give to get, you'll be waiting a long time because God doesn't reward selfishness. But if you give with the right motive... You can know that God is at work. And you can know that he is multiplying your investment in his way and time for his glory. A third principle of sowing and reaping is this. The more seeds you plant, the more you harvest. Again, in verse 6, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Farmers and gardeners wouldn't stay in business if this principle weren't true. The farmer must plant seed in order to reap, but he also knows that he will harvest far more than he plants. Did you know that if a farmer plants two bushels of wheat, that on average he can anticipate harvesting 67 bushels of wheat? Did you know if a farmer plants three bushels of oats, he can expect to harvest 79 bushels of oats? It's an amazing thing, this principle of increase. You home gardeners, you know what I'm talking about. Springtime comes and you plant a few tomato plants. And all summer you wonder if you're going to end up with enough tomatoes for a small tossed salad. And if you garden the way that I do, you won't have enough for even that. <laughs> but if you know what you're doing, and the conditions are okay, in a few months, you have tomatoes. There you are canning them, pickling them, pleading with family and friends to take some home with them. And when all else fails, you bring them to church and you throw them at preachers who speak on giving. <laughs> this is the principle of multiplication. And what's being taught here is, is that you cannot outgive God. If your heart is right and you're generous, God will bless you with even more. Not so you can increase your standard of living but so you can increase your standard of generosity. Now, Paul specifically focuses on giving in the next verse, in verse 7. Just look at verse 7 for a moment. Right after the sowing and reaping analogy, he says this, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is not saying wait until you're, you're cheerful or you feel like giving because you may be waiting a long time. No, he's saying when you realize that the giving of your time and your abilities and your money isn't a debt that you owe, but it's actually a seed that you sow, that you invest, a seed that God's going to multiply for eternity, your attitude will change from one of reluctance to one of joy and celebration. When you begin to experience the harvest and you hear stories of how your faithful seed planting resulted in changed lives like that of Moe's that we heard last week. Every time you hear of children being rescued from the sex trade or a village now having clean water, Every time you hear a poor family in a, a third world country living well and with dignity because of a microloan that you provided for them. Every time you hear of the stories of orphans being cared for and educated and equipped to live normal lives. Every time you hear stories of how your faithful seed planting is impacting the lives of people and families with special needs or making a difference through our church in the lives of the working poor and the new Canadians right here in Calgary. You are no longer going to be a reluctant giver. You're gonna be a cheerful giver. Paul says here, the more you see God multiply your faithful generosity, your faithful planting of seed, 
The more alive your faith will become, the more you will want to give, and the more excited you will be about giving. Scott Lewis attended a conference where the late Dr. Bill Bright challenged people to trust God to give more every year. Scott owned a business that was making a profit of about $50,000 a year and had been making that amount for years. And he talked to Bill about it after the conference and Bill asked him a question. He said, how much did you give last year? Scott told him he gave about $17,000 or about 35% of his income. Bill responded, over the next year, why don't you make a faith goal of giving $50,000? Scott thought that Bill was, he just hadn't understood. I mean, that's all he made all year. But Scott and his wife decided to trust God and ask God to do what seemed impossible. And God provided in amazing ways. A year later, the Scott's business increased dramatically and they were able to give $50,000. The following year, they set a faith goal of 100000 And again, God provided. Soon they were giving over a million dollars a year. And they continue to believe God to use their business to give even more. R.G. Letourneau invented earth-moving machines. He gave away 90% of his income. Again, not to have more for himself, but to invest in the Lord's work. And God multiplied his giving to the place that he was giving away hundreds of millions of dollars. Speaking of his experience, Letourneau said, I shovel it out and God shovels it back. Only God has a bigger shovel. Now again, I need to ensure that we're all clear on the fact that we are not promoting in this church or through this teaching a give to get more kind of mentality. This violates the spirit or the heart behind what the Bible teaches. God does not prosper us simply so we can live in a larger home, a nice, drive a nicer car, or have a more impressive wardrobe. That is not the point. God always blesses those who are generous. But it isn't always a material blessing. His gifts are much more profound than that. And when he does bless us materially, he does it so we can use the increase to resource his kingdom purposes, not to increase our standard of living. Again, look at 2 Corinthians verse 9. Just go down to verse 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so you can what? So that you can live in luxury and have and hoard far more than you need? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Perhaps the truth of what I just explained is best exemplified by the following true-to-life illustration that Randy Elkhorn gives in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He writes this. 
in California, a sharp-looking businessman stands up and gives his testimony. He says, before I knew Christ, I had nothing. My business was in bankruptcy. My health was ruined. I'd lost the respect of the community, and I'd almost lost my family. Then I met Jesus and trusted him completely with my life. He took me out of bankruptcy, and now my business has tripled its profits in the last three years. My change in lifestyle has brought my blood pressure down to normal, and I feel better than I have in years. And best of all, my wife and my children have come back, and we're a family again. I thank and praise God for his goodness. On the other side of the earth, in China, an old, disheveled former university professor gives his testimony. Before I accepted Christ, I had everything. I made a large salary. I lived in a nice house. I enjoyed good health. I was highly respected for my credentials and profession. I had a good marriage and beautiful children. Then I met Jesus and trusted him completely with my life. And as a result of my faith, I lost my post at the university. I lost my beautiful home and car. I spent five years in prison. Now I work for a basic wage at a factory and I live in constant pain from the neck that was broken while in prison. My wife rejected me because of my new faith in Christ. She took my children away and I haven't seen her or my children for 10 years. But God is good and I praise him for his faithfulness. You see, both men are sincere Christians. One gives thanks because of what he has gained. The other gives thanks in spite of what he has lost. As far as both of them are concerned, God is faithful to his promises, and he can be trusted. Material blessings and health and restored families are definitely worth being thankful for, and the elderly gentleman in China would be grateful to have them again. But friends, if the good news of Jesus Christ is the truth, then it must work not just in the prosperity of California or Canada, but also in places where oppression and suffering exists. Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. He says, trust me and give first. Again, not to get, but to bless others with. And doing that, if we're honest, requires faith. It requires us to let go and to give it away. To put a seed in the ground and to bury it. And folks, make no mistake, doing that is going to require that we believe Jesus, not just believe in Jesus. It's going to require that we believe Jesus. And the two things that he taught us in Matthew 6, just want to remind you of that passage. He said there, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're going to be sacrificially generous, if we're going to sacrificially plant seed, we're going to have to trust Jesus' financial advice here. And his advice is twofold. First of all, stay out of earthly treasures. Not that earthly treasures are bad. He's simply reminding us they won't last. We, of course, need earthly provisions to live and so forth. He's just saying, remember, they won't last. He's saying, if you're staking your life on a relationship with a certain person or on a position or a pleasure or money and possessions, be forewarned, they are temporary things and they're going to let you down one day. Use them and enjoy them, but don't worship them. Hold them with an open hand. Don't try to find your identity, your significance or security in them by hoarding them. Rather, invest them in the things that matter to God. John D. Rockefeller was, on, was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. After he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? His accountant responded, all of it. So if we're going to step out and give sacrificially, we need to believe Jesus and remind ourselves often not to worship or to hoard earthly treasures, but rather give them to God to multiply for his purposes. Furthermore, Jesus says here, load up on heavenly treasures. Invest heavily in God's kingdom, in the, in the people and the mission that matters to God. You can't take it with you. But Jesus says here, you can send it on ahead. He's challenging us to have an eternal perspective of life. When you have an eternal perspective of life, you realize you can only take two things with you to heaven. Only two. One is your friendship with Jesus. And the second one is the people who've come to know and follow Jesus through your influence, your testimony, and generosity. And knowing this dramatically changes the way that we think about life and the way that we live our lives and invest what God has entrusted to us. Now, to help us understand this, I want to use an illustration that I saw Francis Chan use. And I use this here, I think, within the last year or two, but it's, it's so powerful. And what I have here in my hand is a rope. And I want you to pretend that this rope goes on forever. Just keeps going. Let's say this rope is the timeline of your existence, which the Bible says goes on forever. Now, you see this little red part? This represents your time on earth. You've got a few short years here on earth, and then you have your forever after. Now, here's the thing. It's pretty obvious that our time after this life is going to be way longer, way longer than our time here on earth. In fact, in relation to eternity, this red part is only a fraction of a heartbeat. It's like a nanosecond. And yet, isn't it true most people are totally consumed with this little red part right here? That's all they think about. 
You ask the average person in North America today, what, what are you passionate about? What are you giving your life to? And most will say, I'm working really hard. I am saving, I'm stockpiling money. So one day when I retire, I can really enjoy this little part right here, right here, this little quarter inch. Man, I'm really going to be living during this little time right here. Seriously? What about the rest of your existence? This little red part of your existence will soon come to an end. And in God's economy, all the treasures and all the trophies, the money, the possessions that you've accumulated and stockpiled for yourself to make you feel valuable and happy, they're going to die with you. Let me ask you, if you were to die today, is there anything or anyone you wished you would have invested more of your time into? Then, then, then let me ask you, why aren't you? Is there anything that you wish that you would have given away if you were to die today? Then why are you still hanging on to it? Why are you still stockpiling it? Why not give it away now? In Matthew 6.33, Jesus pleads with us to seek first the kingdom of God because the kingdom is forever. And when you choose not to spend all of what God's entrusted to you on yourself, but you actually invest in heavenly treasures by giving to his kingdom work to those who are in need, not only will you experience life to the full here on earth, I mean, you will know true joy. Your faith will come alive. Not only will you experience that, but those kingdom investments, they won't die with you. Do you understand? They will not die with you. No, they will actually multiply and they will live forever into eternity through the lives of people that have been impacted directly or indirectly through your stewardship. One day when you get to heaven, people are going to say, look who's here. Not out of shock. No, they're going to shout with joy at your arrival and some of them are going to say to you, thank you for giving to the Lord. Thank you. I'm in heaven because you gave to that missionary or because you supported that pastor or because you taught me in Sunday school. And so it all comes down to this question. Do you trust God enough to believe in and align your life with his principles of generosity? Are you convinced to the core of your being that all that you have God owns, that all that you really need 
God provides. And from today's study, that all that you give, God will multiply for his kingdom purposes. You see, I believe that sooner or later, every person has to make up their mind whether God can be trusted or not. I've been a Christian now for over 40 years, and I'm feeling more and more compelled to anyone who will listen to me that God can be trusted, not just to get you to heaven through Jesus Christ, but that he can be trusted in all areas of life, including what we do with the time and the abilities and the money that he's entrusted to us. It just doesn't make any sense to trust God with our eternal destiny and not trust him in this life with the temporary resources he's given to us. I'll never forget a pastor of a church in Chicago telling me about the giving pattern of a certain couple in their church. You would have never known it by looking at them, but their combined annual income was well over a million dollars a year. She was a surgeon. He was a university professor. Her salary was 10 times greater than his. And they gave over 90% of their net income to the Lord's work. And on top of that, every seven years or so, they took half a year and they served in their specialties in a foreign country, paying for their own way. The pastor could see the look of shock on my face. I was pretty young then because up to that point in time, I'd never heard of such generosity. It just seemed unbelievable to me. He laughed and he said, I know, I know. He said, I, I, I was shocked too. But then he said something I'll never forget. He says, but I guess it all comes down to how serious you want to take God at his word, doesn't it? This couple firmly believes that this life is short. And only what's done for Jesus is going to last forever. This couple believes that they're just pilgrims. I mean, they're just visitors that are passing through. Visitors travel light. Now, folks, I'm so blessed in knowing that God's speaking to people, not just in other parts of the world, but he's speaking to people right here in our church. I'm so blessed when I hear stories of people who are taking small steps because, you know, when you sell all out for Jesus, it isn't like you go from here to there in a flash. It is a process. In 2 Corinthians 8, it talks about excelling in our giving, growing in our giving, and in our faith walk with Jesus. It's a process. But I see people making small steps to grow in generosity. People are giving 10% of their grocery budget to the poor. People who are slashing their coffee budget and their clothing budget significantly and giving it to the work of the Lord. People who are choosing to care for people with special needs and using that monthly income, not for themselves, but to resource missionaries overseas. People who are renting out their basements, not to increase their wealth, but to love on those people and to give more to God's kingdom. People who are giving interest-free money to people who are serious about getting out of debt, people who open up their homes and regularly practice hospitality and provide food for youth and young adults and others to encourage people to enter into true community and to find Jesus. 
people who sacrifice a night or two a week to serve children or youth or people with special needs, people who fix a leaky tap or replace a toilet or provide a bed, install drywall or do electrical work for someone who's just making it financially, people who are just faithfully doing what 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2 calls every follower of Jesus to do. And that is on the first day of every week, set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income for the church collection to resource the mission that God has given to the church. God bless you for being faithful to his calling. The Bible teaches that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and what we do with the time that God has given to us and the talent that he's gifted us with and the money and possessions that he's entrusted us with. We can nod our heads to this truth and every other truth in the scriptures. We can be quick to defend the scriptures and we should. But for some people, that's where it ends. And the Apostle James was right when he said that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You know, so often people fail to align their life and their values with what they say they believe with the excuse as soon as as soon as I get done with my studies, as soon as I, you know, we get married, as soon as my kids' programs slow down, as soon as, as things slow down at work, as soon as I retire, as soon as my mortgage is paid, as soon as, as soon as, never really comes, folks until you make a decision that God will have first place in your life, that God will have the first and the best part of your time and of your abilities and of your financial resources and not what's left over. Now is the time to start planting seed. Now is the time to be and to do what God is calling us to do. I'll close with this. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist who made his fortune inventing dynamite and other powerful explosives which were bought by governments to produce powerful weapons. When Alfred's brother died, one newspaper accidentally printed Alfred's obituary instead. And the paper described him as a man who became rich from enabling people to kill each other in unprecedented quantities. Reading his own obituary like that really shook him up. So much so that he resolved to use his fortune to reward accomplishments that benefited humanity, including what we now refer to as the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel had a rare opportunity to look at the assessment of his life at its end, but still be alive and have the opportunity, therefore, to change that assessment. You know, friends, all of us in this place and in our other campuses, unless we die during this service, 
are still in a position to do what Nobel had the opportunity to do. And I challenge each of us to read our own obituary, not as written by an uninformed or a biased person. No, but as an ongoing angel might write it from God's point of view. What will God say about your life and my life? It doesn't matter what other people say. What will God say about your life and my life? What will that obituary read like? That tribute? Study it carefully, friends. What will it read like? When it's all said and done, did we invest in mostly pleasure or people? In money or in mission? In time or eternity? God's grace continues to be extended to each one of us. I plead with all of us to make a covenant with God and not just with God, but also those who are closest to us to use the rest of our lives to edit that obituary wherever it needs to be edited into what we really want it to be, but more importantly, what we know God longs for it to be and what God created us to be. for God's glory and for the sake of a lost world that matters to him. Let's stand together for closing prayer. After I pray, we're going to join together by responding uh, to this message in one song of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of these people could stand before you and say, to the best of my knowledge, I have faithfully managed what you've entrusted to me. Many of these people could stand before you and say, I have given of my resources to the ministry of the gospel, to the praise of your glory for eternity. But Lord, there are others for whom this is a brand new idea. And still for others, it's a good idea, but Lord, it's sadly a neglected truth. Remind us today, Lord, of what's going to really matter in the end. And that by your grace, we are still in a position to be eternal difference makers in this world. We repent of pride and selfishness. Starting today, Lord, we commit ourselves in a new way to loving and living like Jesus did. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. 
We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.